Our scripture readings this morning are from two passages. We'll begin with Psalm 110, verses 4 to 7. That's on page 594 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn to it. And then uh, if you want to find the place, we'll then um, move forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning in Psalm 110, verses 4 to 7. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing each one of us here this morning to this place. And we thank you that you join us here. We thank you for your scripture. And we thank you for your servants, our pastors Mark and Yuri, who have uh, been obedient to your call to come and lead us. We pray that you will be with Pastor Mark now as he comes to bring us the message that you've laid on his heart and that you will make us attentive, give us ears and uh, hearts to hear and to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. There can be little doubt that the greatest spiritual battle that ever occurred on the earth happened in Gethsemane just prior to Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And it is depicted both in scripture and in film very powerfully that was from the Passion of the Christ. And I share that with you to, to share this. According to the Bible, the Christian life is a battle from start to finish. The life of saving faith in Jesus Christ, the life of ultimate hope in God through Jesus Christ, is a spiritual battle with emotional, physical, intellectual, and material consequences. Whether we know it or realize it or want to know it or want to admit it or not. But unbelief also bears its own tragic consequences. Biblical Christian evangelists and campus ministers all over the world, though, at least in the Western world, have realized over the last several decades that consequences or potential consequences 
don't carry nearly the weight or the seriousness or the angst or the conviction or the challenge to free thinking and free living that they once did. Combined with a diminishing or even something like a total loss of collective, commonly held and shared senses of value such as ethics, morality, justice, goodness, truth, even human life and potential human life. We can see why we need to know and to put into regular practice a much more biblical understanding of the Christian life as a battle or perhaps even better, a spiritual war. Speaking of consequences, I, I hear this terrible song on the radio every once in a while. Perhaps the worst part of it is that it's got a catchy tune that draws you right into it. And before you know it, you're singing these blasphemous words that aren't profane or obscene. They're just blasphemous. I looked it up so I could share accurately with, with you some of the lyrics. The title of this terrible song is Consequence Free by a group named Big, Great Big C. Here's the refrain. I want to be consequence free. I want to be where nothing needs to matter. I want to be consequence free. Just say na, 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 na. It continues, I could really use to lose my Catholic conscience because I'm getting sick of feeling guilty all the time. And then there are a couple of more stanzas and uh, one, one more repetition of the refrain. And then the last stanza is, oh, but for just one night, wouldn't it be great if the band just never ended? We could stay out late and we would never hear last call. Last three lines. Wouldn't need to worry about approval or permission. We could just slip off the edge and never worry about the fall. I can see a sea of thousands of young people, maybe even tens of thousands of young people, none of them from Bethesda, of course at some music festival down south of the border, of course, singing along with the band Great Big Sea, hands in the air as if in worship singing, I want to be consequence free and never worry about the fall. Now, I do want to be fair. For the sake of brevity, I did select stanzas from a longer song, but the whole song follows the same path I've represented here, namely doing whatever we want without the threat of pesky consequences either now or later. I also don't want to demonize the young people in that imaginary crowd that I just evoked or, or here or Great Big C for that matter. I do quite suspect that though. In some real way, such siren songs from both the material and spirit worlds reflect the appealing, seductive voice of the devil in the garden. Not the garden of Gethsemane, but the garden of Eden. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? 
that you would die if you did? You won't die. He just doesn't want you to become all-knowing like him. He's trying to control you, to deprive you, to keep you down, to limit your potential. Don't you worry about the fall. It won't hurt. It'll actually free you to be who you want to be. And all the while, the dutiful, omniscient audience of the scene, as if it were a play, reenacted a gazillion times through the centuries, including in our own lives, in our own church, cries, don't believe him, he's the liar, he's going to get you killed, run back to God. This conversation between the devil and his willing, if ever unwitting, victims is replayed literally millions or billions of times a day. Multiplied by however many days there have been since that first day, the day of the fall, and the Bible calls it a battle or warfare even. Here's, here's one more thing as we get started. It's a long sentence, but, but try to stick with me. Because he failed to dissuade Jesus from the cross, in which his doom was made sure, according to both the Bible and Martin Luther, and a mighty fortress is our God, the devil's next most effective strategy on the spiritual battlefield is to keep followers of Jesus, our leaders, and our churches effectively dismissive of his word, we know better, disillusioned about our future, all we care about is now, deceived about what God has promised, can he be trusted, divided against each other, and defeated on the battlefield. The devil prefers us fussing at and fighting with each other, at each other's throats if he can get away with it, but he'll be satisfied with mere disunity and selfish ambition among us. And this strategy, straight from hell, has been very, very effective for him over the centuries. But contrary to how he might often handle the reality of, how we might handle the, the reality of spiritual warfare, our biblical Christian response will not be to ignore it, or to deny it, or to muscle through it, or to go along with it, to get along with family, friends, and employers, perhaps, or tamp down our consciences to conform to it and convince ourselves or others that there will be no real consequences. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to recognize the truth who is Jesus Christ. To discern truth from error according to God's word as illuminated by his spirit who dwells within each of us. And to engage in this battle, to put up a fight and get back up when we get knocked down because this is the Bible, it's the Bible's promise and one that I can promise as well, we will get knocked down in the battle. Now, that the Christian life is a battle should not surprise us because there is a sense in which we could say that the entire human life weighed down with sin, both our own and that of others, is itself a battle from start to finish, whether we know it, realize it, want to know it, or want to admit it. Life is hard and love hurts everywhere and for everyone. 
even those of us who seem to be or are trying to keep it all together. Life, and especially the Christian life, is a battle. The only biblical Christians for whom Christian, the Christian life is not a battle are those who've gone to be with Jesus, literally. Those who physically, bodily, metabolically died. Our friends and sisters in Christ, Muriel and Louise, fought for decades. Now their fight is over. But for us, the struggle continues. The biblical truth about the truly Christian life is that it's an all-fronts battle from beginning to end, whether we know it to be or want it to be or want to admit that it is. And the Bible summarizes our mortal enemies on this all-fronts lifetime battle as the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, it's a wild understatement to say this ongoing and lifelong battle is underattended to, underappreciated by, and underestimated in the church today. Many, even most Christians, are unaware of it. Many, even most Christians, are unprepared for it. Many, even most Christians, don't even recognize it as such, and we get swallowed up by it. Here are some biblical definitions. The flesh, as in our enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil, is our shared human and innate tendency toward sin over God. And we all have it. We got it from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it has been passed down through every single generation until now, and we share in it. The world is made up of the power structures, the prideful pursuits, the material temptations all around us everywhere in opposition to God. And the devil is the chief spiritual enemy of God, the second most powerful being in the created order, and the fallen angel of false light. Make no mistake, each one, the flesh, the world, and the devil, is equally ruthless. Each one is equally relentless, and each one is equally deadly. Their ultimate purpose is to defeat and kill us one way or the other, and if not spiritually and eternally, then physically and, tempor and temporarily. Dead. Now, you might be wondering, 10 or 12 minutes or so into our message this morning and 45 minutes into this series, if we count last week's message too, what does any of this have to do with Psalm 110? And the answer is only everything. So as we continue, let's consider once more our central truth for our series. You have it there in your bulletins printed out for you, but here it is on the screen. Because of his eternal standing, his singular position in creation, and his merited favor, that means he earned God's favor by his righteous life, perfectly sinless life, and complete and utter obedience to God and God's will and God's word, Jesus Christ was 
is and forever will be exalted above all other authorities, rulers, and powers to the eternal glory of God and for the eternal good of his people. And as we noted last week, Psalm 110 is organized into two distinct conversations. The first conversation is between the Lord Yahweh and the Lord Adonai. That's verses 1 through 4. The second conversation is between the Lord Adonai and David. At least, that's how I read it. Now, I, I probably should give this disclaimer. That's probably not the majority opinion among biblical scholars. Most of them think that this is all the Lord Yahweh and the Lord Adonai in colloquy back and forth between each other. And uh, David is not a conversational partner. He is a scribe writing down this conversation that he has been given some part of observance or reporting for. But I think, as I read it, the second conversation is between the Lord Adonai and David. And if it is, then hello, the second conversation also extends into the future all the way to us by faith. And we'll talk about this in just a bit. That last part, the second conversation, in verses 5 through 7, also extends into the future all the way to us by faith, is very, very important, I believe, for our understanding our role in God's plans and our spiritual and physical survival on the cosmic battlefield. And it's the only way this psalm makes sense to me. Three conversation partners, Yahweh, Adonai, and David. And that's, what we'll, that's what we'll see here in just a few minutes. Well, the first thing I'd like for us to look at um, I'm going to treat the whole psalm, but a little bit more quickly than I did last week, so we'll get through the whole thing. The Lord Yahweh commands the Lord Adonai to sit at his right hand of power and promises to make his enemies his footstool. I put his in brackets because the text actually says, make your enemies your footstool. The Lord Yahweh speaking to the Lord Adonai. Well, let's look at it. The first thing we see here in our text, Psalm 110 is the textual heading. And I, it, it's very easy, and most of us run right past that, right? Okay, there's the heading. It's not really part of the text, but it is part of the text. And it also is the first bit of context that we get for any psalm that we read, because all of them have a textual heading. It's, it's an explanation, sometimes who wrote this, sometimes a very long explanation about who wrote it and when and, and, and why, uh, but most of them have a very short textual heading like this of David or a psalm of David. It, it's both ways. And this means that David wrote it. It's not about David. It is a psalm that David put down. I almost said with pen and paper, but it probably wasn't pen and paper. It was probably parchment or something like that, right? But, but David is credited with its writing, a psalm of David. But in this case... We'll find out along the way that David is also a conversation part partner with Yahweh and Adonai. And I'll make that case in a little bit. Now, how does it, how does it begin? A Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord. Okay, three things. You see three, three people there. One implied, kind of, and two explicit. The Lord Yahweh, 
Lord, Adonai, and the person who says my, which is, so far as I can tell, staying in the text is David. It's a psalm of David. The Lord Yahweh says to my, David's Adonai, my Lord. You see that? And what did Yahweh say to my Lord, to David's Lord? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that is the normal way of expressing that a person has a favored place in the relationship and that I, I, if I'm the superior, I will help the person that I, sit on, that I sit down on my right hand. We will walk together. We will be in relationship with each other. I am for him. He has my favor. He's at my right hand. So what is the, what is the result or the outcome of Adonai's favor from Yahweh? Well, that's verse 2. Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Okay, so now he's speaking to another. This is the second person. Yahweh is speaking to someone, and the someone, staying with the text, is Adonai. So the Lord Yahweh says to my Adonai, Lord the Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion Adonai's mighty scepter. Do you see that? Your, not David, but Adonai's mighty scepter. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So I've, I've put together verses 1 and 2. I want to separate them for just a moment. So let's go back to number 1. The Lord Yahweh commands the Lord Adonai to sit at his right hand of power and promises to make his enemies his footstool. Well, the interesting thing about this is it, it seems that Jesus agrees with this assessment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I shared with you last week that Psalm 110 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. It's also the most cited psalm in the Gospels. And here Jesus explicitly connects himself with this conversation. And David as well, by the way. Matthew chapter 22. You're probably there way before me. I want you to notice chapter 22 from verse 41. And Jesus is in, is in conversation with the Pharisees again when he offers this, if we could put it this way, this commentary on Psalm 110 and several of the portions of it. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? And this, uh, this is the, the, the Messiah in the Old Testament, the anointed of God, the one who will come and save his people um, and so every once in a while in Israel, individuals would pop up who would either present themselves as a possible Messiah or others would try to make them a Messiah or others would believe they're a Messiah and want to follow them. This happened, this has happened many times 
in Israel. And so Jesus is kind of grasping hold of that, that hope, that expectation, and also that situation where there are people who pop up who are uh, potential messiahs, and he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So our series is Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, son of David, word made flesh, right? He is the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so this is verse 1 that we just read from Psalm 110, the Lord, and in the text, in the Greek text, there isn't any distinction between the Lord Yahweh and the Lord Adonai, as there is in the Hebrew that we just read from Psalm 110. And in the English Bible, because the Greek doesn't make any distinction, neither does it here here in the English. It simply says, Lord, kurios is the is the uh, Greek term. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, so, so he is attesting that David is the my. The Lord says to my Lord, then if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Hmm. So we go all the way back to Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord Yahweh says to my Adonai, Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet or make your enemies your footstool. How is it that if he is David's son, that David, in that conversation he's talking about, David himself calls him my Lord. This is Jesus' question. Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And I think the answer is, why they weren't able to answer him, is the answer is unanswerable unless we get more revelation. As in the New Testament. Where we understand not only that Jesus is Lord, but we also come to understand that God is a plurality. Remember, we've talked about that a number of times. A, a plurality with singular action, three persons in, in the Hebrew text, Elohim, but always with a singular verb, right? So plural being, singular action, uh, and that provides the answer, I'm suggesting, but they didn't have that available to them. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, so then now the, the, the second thing that I'd like for us to see from verse 2. The Lord Yahweh also promises the Lord Adonai that his good and sovereign order will be reestablished. So turn back there with me. There we read in verse 2. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion... Your, Adonai, this is the, his conversation part, partner, your mighty scepter, and then another command, just like sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here he says, because Yahweh is sending forth from Zion your Adonai's 
mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So from the fall of humanity, all of creation has been become disordered. We know that. We've looked at that. We've, we've had a number of messages about that. So I think that's fairly well established among us. Um, and here, if he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies, then he is now setting back to order, reestablishing the good and sovereign order that he once had in, not only around him, but in all of creation. And so the Lord Yahweh is promising that the Lord Adonai, sitting at his right hand, allowing the Lord Yahweh to lead in this, that the, the good and sovereign order that was intentional, intentional from the beginning will be established, or, or reestablished, I should say. Now there's, a, there's a, a third thing that we could take from this uh, this morning, having had it introduced to us last week. And the third thing is this, the Lord Yahweh also promises the Lord Adonai that his people will return to him freely and in holiness. Now, there's, there's a big condition that we'll look at the next time, uh, the, on the next uh, verse. But this is a great promise. And includes both Israel and the church. In other words, Jews and us. And if you're Jewish out there, you're included in the us. Um, but so far as I can tell, probably none of us are Jews. We're all Gentiles, so the two will become one into one church. And the Lord Adonai here in verse 3, promises uh, Yahweh promises Adonai that his people will return to him freely and in holiness. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Your, still Adonai, I'm, I'm making po that point because... It'll, it'll mean something here in a minute. In holy garments, we talked about last week, that is a, a common reference to holiness, right? That people take off their soiled clothes, their old clothes, their holy clothes, W-H, or rather H-O-L-E-Y, holy, with holes in them, and puts on the holy garments, right? And they, they, that's, that's a metaphor, for us becoming holy. We know that that happens by the blood of Jesus on this side of the cross, but, but in this case, he's making a promise. Uh, the way that it will be accomplished is not clear in this text. From the womb of the morning, so from the very, very deepest beginning of morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And I think this is a reference, again, to that time when there was no hindrance, there was no impediment between the relationship of Adonai and his creation, his, and, and in this particular case, his people. Um, that is a great, great promise. Now we move on to verse 4, um, which is uh, probably the center around which all the rest pivots, because this is where the cross resides in this prophecy, looking forward to the cross. Um, because priesthood is what is done before the Lord and uh, the priests of Israel, their primary work was to bring before the Lord the sins and the prayers of the people so that they could be forgiven. 
and that was Jesus' primary work at the cross. And so here in verse 4, we, we see this addressed, and I've put it this way, it's the longest point uh, of the morning. The Lord Yahweh also promises the Lord Adonai, so he's still talking to Adonai here, that he, Adonai, will become not only a ruler over God's good and sovereign order. In verse 2, he said, rule in the midst of your enemies. But he will also become its forever priest, offering himself as the sacrifice or the perfect sacrifice of atonement and praise. Now, um, we can't go back, unfortunately, we don't have the time to go back to Melchizedek in, in Genesis, but uh, we will see him in just a minute in Hebrews 7. Let me read verse 4 for us. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, so he's still driving the action. The Lord Yahweh is still driving the action. You, speaking to Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it would be fun for us to go back to, to Genesis and ferret out who's Melchizedek and what are all the possible uh, uh, possibilities for, for who he is and what he's doing. But I think it'd be better for us to get a bit more of a contemporary view, and that's in Hebrews chapter 7. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 with me just very quickly. The writer of Hebrews... I say it that way because I personally don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, I know that that might be anathema in some congregations. Um, if it is, it's unlike anything Paul ever wrote any, at any point. Um, the language is different. Uh, the, the, the logic and the thought process is different. Um, but if you, want, if you believe it, that Paul wrote Hebrews, that's okay. We're still brothers and sisters. Um, I just don't think it, that he is. And see, there in verse 1 of chapter 7 in Hebrews, he begins his explanation of how Melchizedek is connected to Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to see a couple of things. From verse 1, for this Melchizedek, for this, should probably have a comma there, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, check this out, the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, the writer of Hebrews there connects very clearly that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. Um, and so that's the first thing I want you to see. Then I want you to jump down to verse 15. This becomes even more evident. What is this? Well, verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So this becomes even more evident, he says in verse 15, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So, so we're looking for another priest after Melchizedek who has become a priest 
not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from verse 4 of Psalm 110. He goes on. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and, uh, and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sw sworn and will not change his mind. That's the Lord Yahweh, by the way. You are a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, or the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect Forever. So the Lord Yahweh also promises the Lord Adonai that he will become not only a ruler over God's good and sovereign order, verses 1 to 3, but he will become its priest forever, offering himself as the perfect substitute or sacrifice of atonement and praise. And finally, number five, it's the last three verses, 5, 6, and 7. The Lord Adonai promises David... I would suggest this is, this is not Adonai, David, and us too by extension of faith, if it is David, that he, Adonai, is and will stay at his, that is David's right hand, and ours too until the battle is won. So look back with me, Psalm 110. This is the most exciting part of this psalm for me because um, not only, if, if I'm right about this, if it is uh, from Adonai to David, then the implications for us are, are very exciting. So verse 5. For the first time, Adonai leads the action. So that's an important clue there. There's a break in the flow. It's been Yahweh, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. And then verse 5. It now is Adonai driving the action, and Yahweh becomes, in the scene, mute. He, he doesn't speak again. And so, what is the message? Verse 5. The Lord Adonai is at your right hand. Well, who is that? Now, it could be looking, speaking back to Yahweh, right? Because he said, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool, right? It could be looking back to Yahweh. I don't think so, though. I think he now is speaking to David. David is a conversation partner. David had been in the first verse, my Lord, my, that's David, my Lord, right? I think this, your here in verse 5, is David also so I believe this is Jesus saying that to David and to us as well, I will be at your right hand. The Lord Adonai is at your, whoever your is, and I believe it's David, right hand. He, Adonai, on our behalf, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And when it's all over and everything is still and the good and sovereign order of the Lord is restored, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is, this is an important point. When someone goes to drink at a brook, he is vulnerable. He doesn't see anything here. He doesn't see anything behind him. Of course, you might have a guard on your, on your front and on your back. Um, but the point is, the war is over. The fighting is done. Order has been restored. And here's the biggest word, forever. So Psalm 110 has been a, a, an exceptionally important psalm over the ages because it is a clear Christian touchpoint between the Lord Yahweh and the Lord Adonai. And we can make a case that the Holy Spirit is implied in all of it, but also David, who I believe represents those who will follow Jesus as our king in the future. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And he did. And we are all the better for it. Now, clearly that's battle language that I just read. And Kate read this earlier in our scripture reading. I just want us to see it. And the thing that I want us to see here is that God's people do not wage war from the flesh or as the world would have it or by any other means. The best I can tell in scripture is that we wage war with three points. One, prayer. Two, believing the gospel. And three, obeying God's word. That's the way we conduct spiritual warfare. We pray and trust God. We believe the gospel not only for salvation, but also to sustain us through this life. And we obey his word, stand on his word, no matter what we're up against. As best I can tell, that's the way we wage spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, 4, and 5, put it this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we're in these bodies. We, we, can't, we don't have the ability to exist outside of these bodies. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We do that by God's word, proclaiming God's word, believing God's word, teaching God's word, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the warfare methodology and strategy of a Christian. Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, Son of God, word made flesh. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. I thank you for Psalm 110. I thank you for, for moving in uh, Yuri's mind and heart to, to um, 
put, put this before us and to sense that this is the direction we ought to go. And I'm so glad that you did, and I'm so glad that he did. Um, first time I've ever preached on Psalm 110, I think. Maybe parts of it, but not the whole thing. And it is such a rich text of truth and life. And Lord, help us to trust you as our King, as the Lord of glory, as the Son of the living God, as the Word made flesh, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted us to finish this morning hearing a very familiar but very important and illuminating passage. It's Chapter 6 of Ephesians, my favorite book in the whole Bible, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies all around us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's the biblical Christian spiritual warfare, right there, in a nutshell, 10 verses. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Continue, Lord, to make us your people, both in word and in deed. And help us to be, as this scripture text instructs us, to be alert to persevere in prayer and in well-doing. Thank you, Lord, for all these who have come here this morning, whether here in person or on the live stream. Bless us, Lord, with your presence. Bless us with your provision. Bless us with your salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you very much. See you next time.